Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast with me, Angie Mazzetti. Well, the guest today is Dr. Sabina Brennan of Trinity College Dublin, who's an expert in brain health. Sabina is also passionate about communicating about the research in this area. You know, science really should be for sharing and especially um, that most of the people, you know, the general public pay for most of our research through their taxes. And it just seemed, I kind of felt an ethical and a moral sort of need to to share that science. Sabina will be talking about what you can do to improve your brain health as you age and even stave off dementia. That's later in the podcast. Some advice is really simple, such as paying attention to your hearing. We've no problem as our eyesight deteriorates going and getting glasses. Mm -hmm. But we really have a huge problem going and getting our ears hearing tested. And nobody seems to want to get hearing aids. But I would say the sooner you go, the better. Another valuable piece of advice is about social interaction at all ages. One of my tips I give at one of my talks, next time you're at an event, a wedding, whatever, make a conscious effort to talk to someone who's either 20 years younger than you or 20 years older than you. You'll get a nice, you know, surprise usually. Well, I'm delighted to welcome today Dr. Sabina Brennan, who is a psychologist, a filmmaker and now an author of 100 Days to a Younger Brain. You're very welcome, Sabina. Thank you. Um, Your expertise is in brain health, which is such a, a wonderful thing to be an expert in. But tell me, you didn't become like that overnight. How did you get to be such an expert and such a respected expert on brain health? Well, I didn't go to university until I was 42. I did a degree in psychology and then I got a scholarship to do a PhD in Trinity College in the Institute of Neuroscience there. Um, and uh, the subject of my PhD was really looking at how the brain changes with age um, in older people and uh, looking how memory function changes, etc. And Actually, to be honest, through that, when you're doing a PhD, I mean, I did electrophysiology, so I was looking at the electrical signals in the brain and um, testing people with neuropsychological assessments, etc. Um, that was actually very enjoyable. Um, and I've, if I'm honest, I was probably a bit ageist first. I thought, oh, here I am as a mature student and who do I get to work with and test but older people? But actually, it was a real eye opener because um, they are just so w- wonderfully um, interesting. And actually, I, do, I have come to believe that we get more and more more interesting uh, with age. We've had more life experience to change. So that was an eye opener for me. Um, But I really did, you know, I was one of those students that probably drove all the other students insane because I ate up the information, you know, when I did my undergrad degree, I'd read everything before I went into the lecture. In fact, actually, afterwards, one of the lecturers said to me, they used to be terrified coming into me because I'd ask them questions that maybe they hadn't got the answer to. But I was hungry for knowledge. So then when I did my PhD, you know, as you do when you're doing a PhD, you have to read all around the literature and really, you know, get delve down into the depths of it. And the more I read, the more I was discovering, you know, that there are things that you can do to to promote your brain health, to boost your brain health. And that also that um, there are risk factors for dementia that are modifiable, you know, things that you can take action on to reduce your risk of developing dementia. Now, I felt really, really privileged to be working in an institute of neuroscience. It's a collaborative institute. So it literally goes from the molecular right up to the behavioural. So, um, you know, as a psychologist, you're more at the behavioural level, but also I was looking at the neuroscience level as well. 
And so incredible researchers there published in Nature and all sorts of fabulous things. But something struck me, and I think it's probably because I came sort of from outside academia. Um, They were doing amazing work, but the scientists were talking to each other about their science at niche conferences um, at you know, at events and in journals um, that were generally not speaking. Not widely read. And <laughs> not only that, but behind paywalls. So not accessible to the general okay. public, literally, in terms of the being behind a paywall. Um, or even and in then, the language. I and then also even is because there has been a move to more open access journals, which is great. But the language used, I mean, it's it, it's you learn a new language when you, when you become an academic because papers have their academic papers have their own format and languaging and language. And actually, I've begun to question that now. Is there a real need for that? Because it seems when you're reading it, it's about sometimes you know, finding the most obtuse word to use as if that somehow makes you more uh, intelligent. Anyway, long story short, I kind of felt that, um, you know, science really should be for sharing and especially um, that most of the people, you know, the general public pay for most of our research through their taxes. And it just seemed, I kind of felt an ethical and a moral sort of need to to share that science. So and of course you have the extra skills, you had been an actress, you've got the artistic bent. So you you brought all of that to bear in in the next phase. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, so actually yeah, I was quite naive. <laughs> I had um knew after I graduated that you have to kind of try and find funding. Um, and so I was looking through funding uh, and I saw this opportunity, actually, uh, which was uh, the Euro- from the European Commission. It was the FP7 at that time, which is there's various frameworks that it goes through. They were looking for someone to do a project that would um, increase the societal impact of European funded research. And I kind of thought, well, okay, I can kind of bring something to this. As you said, I had a background. I was an actor, but I'd also done a little bit of documentary making and that kind of thing. And uh, I thought this might be an opportunity, but to to blend the science and and the communication skills. And I was very cheeky. I, I wrote a proposal that said... You're a bit mad if you think anybody is going to be interested in a website or a communications programme that just says, hey, look at us, how brilliant we are. We've done all, funded all this wonderful research and look at the difference it's making. But I said, what you are looking to do that I'm passionate about is add an extra two healthy years to people's lives. And in later life, you know, we're living longer, but we're not necessarily living healthier. Um, later life is characterised by chronic diseases and also neurodegenerative diseases like dementia, which was my area. It's the sort of thing people worry about. Basically, I just said, look, if you give people something that they need, I said, can we do what I proposed was give me the funding to translate scientific research, yours that you funded but also that's also been, you know, done globally um, to tell people that they can do things for their brain health and to tell them about risk factors for dementia. And then within that framework, um, I can also, you know, when they're looking at an article about, you know, what can you do to keep your brain healthy? You know, another piece will come up and say, you know, look at this project that the European Commission have done. We're looking for markers, biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease or whatever. So it's all integrated. So they actually bought it and they gave me the funding. And it wasn't until after I got the funding that I realised what a big a deal it was. It was a lot of funding as well. (laughs) It was a million euro and it was to... They must have um, loved that in Trinity, did they? Well, they did. And actually, I'm one of the very, very few people in Trinity who have ever be, 
received funding from the European Commission to coordinate a European wide project. That usually comes much later in your career. But in my naivety, and actually that's something I would say to people out there and to women especially, think big. Don't be put off, you know, if you think it's something you want to do and and and, and think that you have what it takes. Don't be put off what and other by what other which I can see you are. Other yeah. people. Yeah, and if you're passionate, yeah, absolutely. Don't be put off. I was naive and I've learned from that, you know, I kind of go for things now. But then from that, that same time I had applied for other projects and pretty much most of them came in all together. So I had a very busy few years. But one of the other things that came in, I use animation. A lot because it's a great way to get a message across. Um, I use humour. Um, I just think entertainment is hugely important. I, I call what I do empowerment through entertainment, actually. And they're um, very short. Now, very right? short. And yeah. actually, they've got shorter. My first ones were about two and a half minutes. I'm doing ones at the moment that are re- really literally about a minute long. Um, and, and we've so got just used getting to little that. concepts through in each of those. Key messages. It's actually very good. It's a good exercise. It's hard to do. There's a lot of work at the beginning because, you know, you look at, well, what is is it that we want to tell people and sometimes there's 10, 15 things you want to tell and really makes you focus what's the key thing what's the most empowering thing it's different to scientific writing because with scientific writing you have to come up with every single caveat you know this is what we think but it might not be true for this it might not be true for that but actually really when you're getting a message across to the general public you've got to forget about that and you've got to get the key message um, across and um, I think people want to be entertained. They don't necessarily want to be educated. You know, when you're going online searching for something, really, yeah. yeah. And and I, but I don't think people mind being educated while they're entertained. And I think that's and I've done research on my on my films, and we have found that people find them entertaining. But really, what's interesting is uh, we found that we've made significant difference. Um, you know, around their knowledge, but uh, and their intention to change behavior, and and that whether they learned or intended to change behaviour was significantly related to how much they enjoyed the films. So that's kind of important to see. But you mentioned there about, you know, people being worried. At the very start of that first project and all my projects, the first thing I do is consult with the people for whom the 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 audience, you know, who who's who's Keep going to be the consumer. Mind, yeah. Yes, yeah. I consult them from from the outset. I always talk to them. You want to find, uh, make sure. There's no point in telling them something they either already know or they don't. They're not interested in, or you know. And actually, I consult them throughout. I'll I'll, I'll let people have a look at films beforehand, or you know. So it's a so you can uh, tweak them, I presume. Yeah, yeah, just a bit of through. tweaking. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, you really can't write films by by committee, but it is important to get involvement. I'm doing a project on neonatal brain injury at the moment for parents of of brain injury. It's not somewhere it's something that I'm an expert on, but I spent a lot of time before writing those films talking to to parents who've been through it, uh, talking to um, the consultants who are actually driving the project, who are also passionate about brain health. And in fact, they came to me because they'd seen my other brain health films. But yes, absolutely. And when we've written those scripts, they've gone back out to the parents to make sure, because I don't know whether a little line I've put in there would actually really get, you know, resonate distress people, yeah. a parent or yeah. not. I, I can hear people saying, what are the things that we should be doing to improve our brain health? Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. What, That's you what are those key messages that yeah, we need so to land with people? About? Well, so actually, the first key message is that dementia is not, an, uh, you know, our cognitive decline is not a normal 
part of aging. Um, disease Do you think is that's the a, cause. a concept that's out there. It's, I, it's inevitable that when you get old, you're going to get dementia and you'll be put on the shelf or into a nursing home. I think there's a lot of misconceptions and that comes from the fact that there's stigma associated with it. So people don't talk about it and if people are worried about it, they don't talk about it. And actually they end up doing things that make the, it, it worse. And, and the fact of the matter is there are a lot of things that can mimic dementia in later life and I can talk about those a little later if you wish. But the, the things that actually help boost brain health and there's a lot of science behind these um, are things that you might not expect. Like um, getting physically active, physical exercise is Get out for that walk. <laughs> hugely important, but not wow. just the aerobic, not just the walking, uh, anaerobic exercise, um, you know, muscular strength building and balance. Like lifting weights and, and Lifting weights and, and it, yeah, anything that involves wow. that. And it's funny, um, you know, we think that we lose muscle mass because we age. Actually, we lose it because we stop doing things. Stop moving. We stop moving yeah. and we stop. And, and there's a fabulous book, Age is Just a Number, by a guy called Charles Ulster. And um, he um, uh, he started weightlifting at 90 or something and, you know, ended wow. up fully ripped, you know. And there's another woman. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a woman I found online. I have a section in my book actually about sort of people who started mm. doing things in later life, including those kind of things. And I was looking for a female sort of equivalent of Charles. I'm actually found loads online. And there's a woman and I just saw her the other day, you know, if, if I can't remember her name, but, you know, at 82, she is fully ripped and she started uh, lifting weights at 56. I started myself last year um, and actually I find it very meditative. But the reason you need muscle strength and balance actually is that in later life you can start to fall and falling predicts um, you know whether it's you go on to sequence. it's a sequence yeah. sort of happens if you fall and I'm sure people will that will resonate you know yeah. oh, she fell and broke her hip, hip and after that yeah. she never kind of recovered so actually having good muscle strength and balance will help prevent those so getting physically active staying socially engaged is hugely important I noticed that you said you know um, you know when people lose their hearing Yes. They tend to get less engaged and that can lead to dementia well, too. Is that true? Yeah, well, we actually published a paper that, that actually got huge um, international interest and that's about the link between age-related hearing loss, a possible link between age-related hearing loss and cognitive decline. Um, now, it's really early days in, in that area of... of, of um, research and um, there's two possible mechanisms that could be happening from it could be that with age-related hearing loss um, that uh, you may be less inclined to engage socially because and I'm, both my parents actually had hearing deficits that actually weren't age-related but you withdraw a little bit from social circumstances because maybe you quite can't can't catch conversations or you're it's worried well, worried that it? people and yeah. also maybe as well it becomes harder when we get older to get rid of all that background noise and it's hard to the high pitch the sounds, high pitch yeah. sounds and and you lose uh, difficulty you know you have difficulty differentiation and and um, or it could be that because the signal you're getting in your brain is less the brain's not getting the same stimulation that it needs active, yeah. yeah yeah so so it's either one and and actually the take home message that i would say from that is We've no problem as our eyesight deteriorates going and getting glasses, mm -hmm. but we really have a huge problem going and getting our ears hearing tested. And nobody seems to want to get hearing aids, but I would say yeah. the sooner you go, the better. The hearing aids are magnificent now. There's all apps attached to them and you can have them set for different different rooms. You can have them set so you can watch the television in a way you can hear it while the rest of your family can. So, yeah, that's phenomenal that's, team in Bowman yeah. with the cochlear implants. Oh, I, your amazing. documentary was amazing yeah, on that. And actually the, the PhD 
student um, who actually did the research, he did his whole PhD on that. He's actually um, got congenital deafness. So he was born uh, deaf. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of interesting to, to him as well. It was a lovely, uh, lovely piece of work. Um, but yes, yeah, so uh, get physically active, stay get socially engaged. Socially engaged. Social yeah. engagement is huge. There's, a, there's um, a direct relationship between the density of your social networks and the density of your neural networks. Yeah. And, and of course, those networks, you know, given they, the way nature is, they, they tend to have little chinks in them because people die as you get older. So there's no nice way to say it that uh, if we do this thing we have in society of, of socialising with our peers, it has to stop. We need much more intergenerational engagement um, because... You see younger people get an awful lot out of, you know, when they reach across that divide oh, to... And older, older people, people do too. You yeah. know, when you actually do that, it's one of my tips I give at one of my talks. Next time you're at an event, a wedding, whatever, make a conscious effort to talk to someone who's either 20 years younger than you or 20 years older than you. You'll get a nice, you know, surprise usually. There is value, of course, in socialising with people the same age as you because you share common histories and, you know, common stages of life. And, and there is that. But there's no nice way of saying it as you get older if everybody's the same age as you your social circle diminishes and before you know you become socially isolated and it is detrimental to your physical health your mental health so and your brain health make a bit of an effort yeah get out there get socialising get online to find ways to get offline if you're restricted at home um, then contact people like alone who have befriending services there's no shame in being lonely it just actually is a sign that you are human because the loneliness signal is like our hunger signal. It is actually telling us it's painful. Hunger is painful. Thirst is painful. It's a, great way to look it's at a trigger to get you to take action, to do something that that your body needs. And loneliness is just that signal. And loneliness isn't something that is age dependent. People tend to think, oh, poor, lonely, older people. Loneliness is context dependent. It happens to us all across our lives. For me, the loneliest point in my life was when I had my first kid. There was no internet. There was no mobile phones, really. Mm -hmm. And you were isolated in your own house. And I found parenting hard. And, and, And that's tough. It can happen when you go to college for the first time. It can happen if you start to work at home. Do you know? Um, So, yeah, social isolation for everybody. So being socially connected. After age, age is the biggest risk factor for dementia. After age, the next biggest risk factor is low levels of educational attainment and also mental stimulation. Thankfully, if even if you left school early, if you engage in mentally stimulating activities, you can you I mean, can gain the benefit. Learning. Lifelong learning. I am absolutely the passionate about education. It. Colleges if there fabulous. is anything that the government should do is to take lifelong learning out of their um, it, it's in the uh, it's an under workforce uh, whatever that department is my brain's not working now um, <laughs> as I speak uh, jobs and enterprise is yes. where it is um, it should be in education and, and um, actually it's relevant to health because the benefits of lifelong learning can actually help to address those health inequalities that arise as a consequence of low educational attainment um, we know that people who have higher levels of education have healthier lifestyles in general and you can help to address that with lifelong learning. But the added bonus is your brain is plastic and that means it can grow new neurons. And that happens three times in your life. And it happens in an area of the brain that is involved in learning and memory. So it's hugely important for in terms of dementia because it's the part of the brain that is populated with these plaques and tangles that characterize dementia. 
And it happens when we're born first, when our brain is developing. Um, it happens in response to a brain injury to help to compensate or cope with that brain injury. And then it happens in adulthood any time something new is learned. So is that why they say learning a new language is really just, good as well? Just, it, just learning anything, because with learning comes the new neurons that can help you cope with, even if you do get the pathology, if you've got more healthy brain, you you can hold on to your functions for longer. So actually size sort of matters. So too does um, the complexity, the, the, the way that your brain works. And that comes from challenging yourself. If you constantly push yourself beyond your comfort zone, your brain has to start to bring in other areas of your brain to meet that challenge. And in a way, that's what happens if you have rehabilitation after a stroke or a brain injury. The occupational therapist is trying to get other of your areas of your brain to take over a functioning of the damaged area. If you've been doing that all your life with um, by challenging yourself, you're ahead of the posse. Mm. Um, but what would you say like to women who say, look, I am fed up challenging myself. I'm exhausted. Yes. I just want to break, you know, and particularly for women. Is there an additional um, are, are women more prone to dementia? So, so two things I would say is it's about balance. Yes. You, you know, for every time you challenge yourself, you need to have rest and relaxation and balance. And actually in times of rest is where insight and creativity comes. So there's as much value in that. There's a de- default mode mode network in your brain that kicks in and and that's where we believe insight comes. Yes, unfortunately women are much more likely than men to develop dementia. Um, Is that because women tend to live longer? That's one of the reasons. Women tend to live longer. They don't live better. Women's later life is characterised by more chronic ill health than men. Men die sooner. It doesn't explain the whole story, though, either. Um, Quite possibly, particularly in Ireland, it could be that we have low levels of education. Uh, Women generally globally have lower levels of education than men. Women generally globally don't get to benefit from occupations that are mentally stimulating in the same way that men do. Um, so that could be part of the story. There may also be something hormonal um, at play. Um, it really is, you know, it's an unanswered question. So women really do t- need to take note. And and um, a lot of us go out of the workplace and, you know, we're at home looking after children, you know. And get elderly parents. And elderly well. parents mm. and, and caring women as well are doubly affected by dementia because most people who care for someone with dementia are also female and men make great carers. You know, when my mom had dementia, Mm. my husband was incredible. He did things that I couldn't do. Um, He was just and he was wonderful with her and she was just mad about him. And it was wonderful to see them laugh together. So I would encourage more men. I think we have to value caring. The problem with caring as a profession is that it's undervalued and underpaid and actually really particularly when it comes to dementia, you need to have great insight and understanding about the disease to make the, the, the lived experience of dementia um, uh, worthwhile for the individual. And you can do if you understand the disease, you can minimize the difficult things and maximize, you know, the more pleasant times associated with it. Uh, going back to brain health, Sorry. I don't want to forget um, heart health is huge hugely important for brain health. Why is that? Um, the oxygen going to the brain? Basically because your heart services your brain. So your brain only weighs 2% of your body, but it consumes about 25% of all the nutrients that you take in. So your blood carries the oxygen and nutrients to your brain. 
if your um you know if your arteries are blocked if you've high blood pressure etc really what happens is you know um, you're at risk obviously for things like stroke which mm-hmm. will damage the the blood vessels in your brain but also if your brain is under pressure you know the 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 supply won't reach all areas of your brain and your brain cells won't survive very long um without a supply and they will die off so you get this atrophy um our brains naturally kind of shrink a little as we age um, but if you have something like that you're going to have more atrophy so everything that you know about looking after your heart is going to benefit uh, your brain I presume managing things like alcohol and consumption and smoking smoking is just an absolute no no smoking is just if you smoke stop I'm an ex-smoker myself I do understand but it's the most ridiculous thing that you could do for your your brain. brain. You just have to stop smoking. Is that because it's cutting off oxygen? It deprives, yeah, it deprives oxygen. um, And also probably the toxins in the cigarettes itself, your brain is very vulnerable um, around that regard. Um, Alcohol, yes. And actually, if ever I speak on the radio about alcohol... (laughs) Um, the producers tell me they're inundated you know nanny state stop telling me I shouldn't drink alcohol not telling anyone they shouldn't drink alcohol I'm just letting you know what the data suggests that um, you know even moderate consumption of alcohol um, is not beneficial to your brain health Um, so it really is um, I mean balance it with socialising etc but uh, we don't have a very healthy approach to alcohol consumption I mean you can see when people take too much alcohol it alters their their mood it alters their pro- absolutely you know, it's a depressant it's a well. depressant you wake you wake up depressed well actually what happens is basically essentially it from an evolutionary perspective we've three parts to our brain we've our reptilian brain which is the bit that keeps us alive do all the things like breathing and make your heart pump that you don't have to think about then you have have what they call the um, sort of emotional brain where your amygdala is where your fight or flight response is and then you have the, the, the cortex the neocortex the part of the brain that really as humans is very large and, and gives us that advantage it's where all our thinking and decision making and planning occurs and particularly in our frontal lobes that's where our executive control is that's really where we you know we connect with what our emotional brain is saying and can override it with rational thought and decision that's one of the first things that gets switched off when you drink alcohol that's probably why people drink so then you go to to the and I won't say it back to the three F's yeah fighting food and yes Um, yeah, you go Fancying back to people. <laughs> yeah, you go back to the to the very very basic functions, and and that's why a lot of people wake up having done something that they wouldn't normally do out of character because your character is your lifelong learned experiences, and and that's really what your frontal lobes do. They connect with your lifelong experience and say, is this something I want to do or not? Mm. Um, now, one thing you've been doing all your lifelong, as far as I can see, is being a leader. <laughs> now. <laughs> You haven't gone for election as far as I know or anything like that, but you've been a huge leader in terms of health and communication and just getting messages out there. What has brought you to that uh, phase in your life where you really feel that you've had to lead out? You probably didn't even recognise yourself as being a leader, but you are, you know. So what are those qualities and what do you believe a leader should be? Well, I, I think it's funny because, yes, I wouldn't necessarily see myself as a leader. And I was actually invited by the Scottish Care Inspectorate, who are the equivalent of our HICWA. You know, they, they monitor healthcare facilities and hospitals. And they invited me this year, 
September um, to uh, give a talk on leading to improve and I'm kind of going God I'm not even a leader and I didn't even think about it but then when I when I did think about it yes I think leaders take a lot of different forms and, and I think you know we've started to see confuse the word leader with world leader and that's a very strange thing at the moment when you look at people like Trump who are, who are taking leadership in the world at the moment um, and I think people lead and I was probably thinking of it myself from that narrow focus that people lead for power, people lead for profit, people lead for glorification or people lead to amass followers. And um, I'm I'm stealing from a quote from someone called Bennett who said that um, real leaders um, create more leaders, not followers. Uh, And I think that's part of, 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 of what I want to do I so you're like empowering others I, I just yeah. want to empower others I you know I, is that in the healthcare sector it, it, it's kind of across the board so so I mean I, I, as I, I'm kind of you know I mean it's important to me to make a difference I that's why I get up out of bed in the morning you know and I think everybody has that thought you know what's the point and for me what's the point is well can I make a difference can I make people's lives better and that's why I love animation um, because I can get those messages across um, and then they can go out online and have a life of their own and they have done they've been viewed in 145 countries um, I've you know, I haven't had any funding to advertise them. They're just people Google and they find them. Um, also, actually, through just volunteers, they've been translated into nearly 15 languages now, um, you know, had subtitles put on them. So that's the beauty so, of animation. Oh, yeah, no, it? it's, yeah. it's fabulous because we have um, them in Korean and, you know, Portuguese, all sorts. And the the, um, the NHS actually revoiced them in Hindi, Urdu, Somali, Arabic, Polish. Um, so they, they're getting out there and people People are getting something from them. And I give a lot of talks and it's 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 fantastic to see. I don't know whether I said this to you already, but when I ask people what they feared about growing old, they, you know, there, there's a lot of fear out there about getting dementia and, and people think that there's nothing that they can do. And when I give a talk and I give people information about the risk factors for dementia and how they can boost their brain health and how you're never too old to make those changes, it's just fantastic to see people get hope back in their lives again. Um, similarly then as well, I, I guess my work empowers those who are in positions of leadership. Um, a lot of my films um, and my other materials are used um, by those who are leaders in care, clinical or advocacy settings um, to empower other people or to train other leaders or, or to train staff. So they, they just go and have, have a life of their own. But I'm, I'm passionate about advocacy and about trying to make a difference. And I do serve on a lot of voluntary committees, you know, with the Alzheimer's Society and, you know, as as SAGE and, and, um, you know, even I'm on, you know, European committees about how we can make life better for people who are affected by brain diseases, you know, like migraine, multiple sclerosis. So I've done stuff for brain health for multiple sclerosis as well. Um, And so I'm just a firm believer um, that, you know, a lot of people feel powerless and that's why I don't really like leadership being all about and social media you know how many followers can we create because I think as a follower you can feel disempowered and I think a lot of us feel in the political sphere powerless and and there's an us and them situation and I just have this feeling that lots of changes 
change comes when lots of people do little things and we're not powerless and and the change starts with you so instead of giving out about what people are not doing say well what is it I would like to happen what can I do because then you're empowering yourself then you're part of that change whereas I'm not a fan about criticizing without coming up with a solution and I think if everybody started to see themselves as part of the solution. And I'm not just talking about going out marching. I'm not talking about that. Yes, that we can do that. Too, that has its role yeah. too. It does. I'm not talking mm. about that. I had problems with, you know, you know, when there was a new minister for older persons who came in and she came to an event, actually, it was about elder abuse. And I was sharing a very personal story at that event. It was a sage uh, story and it was a a sage event. And uh, I was really disappointed as many times ministers come. They come to an event and then they leave. They don't stay to hear what people have to say. And many of those stories are very poignant and emotional and can change minds and lives and and how things are done. And uh, I was very upset and I really respected the minister, but I contacted them. And um, I said, actually, I think I tweeted and said, you know, I'm very disappointed, you know, delighted you came and showed an interest, but very disappointed that you didn't stay. And I got into a conversation and basically I got myself a one to one meeting with that minister. And actually that minister ended up giving me more than an hour of her time. And I went into that meeting from the perspective of, well, if she's like me, she wants to make a difference, she wants to leave a legacy. And I said, what would I like to happen? And what I did was a one pager. I didn't go in to criticise. I didn't go in. I did a one pager. And I said, if you want to leave a legacy, here's things that need to be done in the ageing space, in the dementia space, in the brain health space. Top ones, quick wins. Bottom ones, longer term. And I equated them. I said, if you do, say heart health is is important for brain health. I said, if you run a campaign about everybody getting their blood pressure tested, that will, you know, X percent of people of cases of dementia could be prevented if we reduce that. That translates into X amount of money that you would save the healthcare system. And I handed her the one page and, you know, um, you know. It was Helen McEntee. It was Helen McEntee at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, then she she got moved on. And, you know. Great doer. She's she's doing a great job. She is doer. She is a doer. She is a doer. And unfortunately, this time in the budget, um, they didn't hear us. You know, we asked for a small amount, seven or eight million in terms of uh, for care in the community for people with Alzheimer's disease. And, and you know, they, people, you know, ministers said they listened and don't worry, you know, it'll come. But it hasn't. And, and we're fed up asking. There's 55,000 people living with dementia it's in normal, Ireland it, yeah. and they don't have a voice. Mm. They can't go marching on the streets. Their carers can't go marching on the streets because they're too busy caring. It's exhausting. Caring it's exhausting well. caring. Mm. And for a lot of them are women who are also trying to hold down jobs as well and put kids through university and do all those things Mm -hmm. that we're expected to do. And um, I really do wish that people would start speaking out more for 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 those, because if we don't change it, then it's you and I who are going to be warehoused um, in care homes. So tell me, before we wrap up, I know as a leader and as a mother, you have great leadership skills. What would be your top, maybe top five tips for for people in leadership? But we'd say particularly for women in leadership. Right. You've been fearless in going out there and campaigning for things you want to do yourself. So what advice would you give to other young women? Yeah, I do think that I wasn't on my list, but I do think kind of being, you know, feel the fear and and do it anyway. I think that was a Louise Hay book, was it a long time ago? but yeah, I, I, and I do think, you know, think big, believe in yourself. But I, I would always say question everything, especially yourself. 
uh, question why you're doing something, question why you're not doing something, question whether you really want to do that something. And there's a great exercise. I did it myself a couple of years ago and it really helped me focus where I wanted to go. I wrote down everything that I do and everything that I want to achieve. And I was able to scratch off the things that I do that don't take me to where I want to go. And it allows you really fine tune your focus. I would really question how everything is done because an awful lot of things, particularly in healthcare systems, are done because that's the way they've always been done. And I think you need to question them and say, is that the best way? Why are we doing it? Do we still need to do it? Could our time be better spelt doing something else? Another thing as well, you know, it's funny you said to me about being a leader and I wouldn't have seen myself. Another time I've been asked and I actually got an award for innovation from Provost in Trinity and I'd never seen myself as an innovator either because I see innovation as about industry and technology and all that sort of things. But actually now, again, because I had to speak about innovation, I said, well, well, what I see innovation as is trying to find simple solutions for complex problems. And I think that's what I do. Brilliant, yeah. Dementia is a complex problem and I try and find the simplest solution that I can. And I think because we're so clever, really, and we've made such technological advancements, that what we're doing when we're seeing a problem is actually looking for the most complex way we can fix that problem. And we've forgotten to come back to the simple. And actually, also, sometimes when we're looking for a solution, to be a recipient of the solution, we're less open to the simplest solution. We want a pill that will stop me getting dementia. You know, we want technology that will help me. When actually, everything that you can do at the moment, to the best of our knowledge, to reduce your risk and and maximise, are all free. They're all within your own power to do. Doesn't mean they're easy, But it's within your own power. So we kind of went off 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 track. Um, I think it's really important, actually, to acknowledge multiple starting points okay. for people. Explain that one to me. I think if you do that, you can acknowledge that change happens in an incremental fashion. I think often goals are set by leaders, uh, very abstract, very long term and really they're too far in the future and I think there's always steps towards a goal and and people start at different levels and if you set everybody the same goal for some people they never get off the starting block it just seems too big it's 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 too big it's, yeah. it's it's too far away so it goes back to my thing about um big changes come about when everybody does little things. So so if if you acknowledge the steps towards the progress rather than the final goal and celebrate every su- success, every step, do you, you know, you're empowering people. Um, and and I think, yeah, I, I, I think if you give clear goals um, and the tools that you want people to do whatever it is to get towards your goal, And then give people the freedom to find their own methods, the freedom to use their imagination, because with that becomes ownership. And, and, and often not given, though, in organisations. No, it's, it's not. It's hard it's, for people to let go and give no, people that space. Yeah, yeah. The, an amazing thing happens. I'll mention, actually, um, a CAPA programme, Care About Physical Activity. It was done in Scotland. And that's actually what their leader 
did and, and, and that's why I was invited. They wanted to get everybody physically active in care facilities and care homes, including staff and patients. They told them what they needed, what they had to do. It was focused on little improvements, um, but they gave everybody in their own setting the freedom to introduce their own programs, etc. They had phenomenal results. And they shared those personal stories. There was one lady, she was bedridden, had given up hope. She thought she was going to die. You know, that was it. And the little thing that I think it was her physio or her OT just said to her, look, if you just sit on the side of your bed, that's one step closer to you going home. Now, she had given up hope. She said that one sentence changed her life and they literally left, did one step of a time at a time. And within 12 months, I believe, because the program's only running 18 months, so at max 18 months, that woman is now at home living in her own home in London. Phenomenal. Le- phenomenal. phenomenal. She'd given up hope. So, so those, and then I finally, one that my father always said, um, and it's uh, measure twice, cut once. Great one. It, My dad used to say yeah, that too, it, God rest him. It <laughs> yeah. comes from tailoring, but yeah. it, 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 certainly even with, with my book as well, you know, you know, it, with everything you just, it's about, it's about making sure you've got it right before you, you go out there, you know. I mean, you're never going to get it all right. No, no, danger, no, no. But, but I, yeah, it's absolutely true. You just, just do that little bit of extra care to make yeah, sure you've yeah, got it as well yeah, as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me the name for the book again and when it's out. It's A Hundred Days to a Younger brain. Um, The tagline is maximise your memory, boost your brain health and defy dementia. And it's actually, uh, it's an activity programme and actually that acknowledges people's starting points. So it's a very personalised programme. So it's not about a one size fits all. You literally each chapter, you take assessments about where you are on a particular factor that influences brain health and you make your own brain health profile. So you identify what your risk factors are and what your assets are because you're already doing things that are good for your brain health. So it's very personal and you go on a journey hopefully that that takes you to improve brain health and literally rejuvenates your brain that's not an outlandish uh, statement you know you really Mm -hmm. can rejuvenate your brain okay well lots of us for everybody to learn there i'd like to thank you so much for coming in today and uh, for doing the podcast with us you've given us so much to think about literally physically we'll all have to get out on our bikes and start doing weights and the the crossword and the sudoku and everything like that so to sabrina brennan thank you so much for coming in to us and uh, best of luck with the book Thank you. Well, that was my guest, Sabina Brennan, and I'm Angie Mazzetti. That's all from the Women in Leadership podcast for this week. We'd love to hear from you and any reactions you have to the interview. If you have anyone you think you'd like us to interview for the Women in Leadership podcast, do let us know. You can contact us through the website, through the contact form, or just email us at info at womeninleadership.ie. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all of the Women in Leadership team, Goodbye and take care.